You're listening to the Gospel of Mark, a series preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. We'll be back in the book of Mark this evening, and I think tonight we're in one of the most encouraging stories that the Bible has to offer us. Uh, The more you dig into this story, the more incredible it becomes. The grace of God, the unmerited favor of God toward undeserving sinners is no more apparent in this story, anywhere else in the scripture, than it is in this story. Now, if I said to you, there are two things that are certain in this life, what would you say they are? Death and taxes, right? Everybody knows that it, two things that are certain in life is death and taxes. And what's interesting is that's been true for a long, long time, right? Thousands of years back, and there's still two things that are sure. Um, taxes have been a necessary part of living in society with any type of governing body for years. And we say it's necessary, and the truth is it can be very productive. And even though none of us go paying our taxes thinking, this is awesome, I can't wait for the new road they're going to put in or the new hospital they're going to build or whatever they're going to do with this money, we don't come to paying taxes with this excitement and joy for what it's going to be used for, even though we know that it's important that we have a society like this and we can enjoy some of the benefits of Canada because we have a tax system and a governing body like we do. And so what I'm saying is none of us, naturally enjoy to pay taxes. None of us naturally enjoy seeing that money come off the check or or writing that property tax bill or, or whatever it is. And the thing for us today is we don't have a face to put on our dislike of paying taxes, right? We send it into the Canada Revenue Agency. Uh, we send it into kind of this, this body of people that take care of all of those things and they do what they will with. And so there's nobody that we, that we especially dislike. So I want you to compare our system now with the system that was in place back in first century Judaism, first century Israel. Back then, they're paying their taxes not to their government to build hospitals and, and to develop our educational system and to take care of a lot of needs in society, some good social programs. Their taxes aren't going toward those things. Their taxes are going toward the government and the army that are in their land, that are occupying their territory, and that are essentially building up the army that's keeping them down, right? And so they're not paying their taxes to a governing body that's that's concerned about their welfare and their benefit, They're paying it to people who are keeping them in a a kind of slavery. Automatically, they wouldn't have enjoyed that. The system was also set up because the Romans weren't dumb. And so they knew if we go around collecting taxes, people are going to hate us more and more. And it's actually, if you're you're occupying a land, it's not a good idea to make everybody in the land hate you. It's just going to incite more hatred and more desire to rebel. There was already enough of that within the Judaism and enough of that within all of the nations they conquered. And so their their goal was to find ways to lessen the hatred on themselves. And so what they did is they would employ people of that nation who would collect the taxes for them. They actually had like a franchise situation where they would franchise out, okay, if you want, you can come in, you can buy the rights to tax this area of land, and every year we expect this much property, this many people, to bring in 
this number, this amount in taxes. So you pay us the amount that you that everybody owes every year, and you keep the rest for yourself. And so people would really, they, they it, like starting McDonald's, they get a franchise. I get this area. This is my area to, to govern, my area to tax. And so what you end up having is you have the Jews who are taxing their fellow Jews and taking the money, taking extra for themselves, and giving the rest to the Romans. I know you came here for a Bible lesson tonight. You're getting a, a first century G- Israel tax lesson. <laughs> All right, but, but it kind of, it, you'll see why it's pertinent in a second. You probably already know why really smart like that. And so here we have this really interesting scenario where you have one guy who's in charge of a whole territory that's collecting taxes for the occupying army. And this guy is not only collecting the taxes he's supposed to, but he has a license, the ability, to collect basically whatever taxes he wants to. They did have some general guidelines. You're supposed to collect at least 1% income tax. There's also a poll tax for every single person, ladies between ages 12 and 65, men between 14 and 65. They also had a a ground tax, which meant everything that comes from the ground, 10% of that goes to the Romans, and everything that comes from the sea, 10% of that would go to the Romans. And and they had duties, sales tax, and and those kind of things, import and export. And so it it was the tax collector's job to ensure that all of the money that was to be collected was properly collected. And they would do this however they needed to. And oftentimes what would happen is people that couldn't pay taxes, they would say, don't worry about it. I will lend you the money at only 50% a year. And if you don't pay, you become my slave until it's paid off. And so this kind of system, it, it was prevalent and it just bred hatred. And so ultimately... It was the tax collectors, even more than the imposing Roman army, that bore the brunt of the hatred that the Jews had for the Romans. It's really easy to hate a traitor, isn't it? It's really easy to hate somebody who's been unfaithful to you, who's broken promises to you, who's taking advantage of you. Those are the people that are easy to hate. You know? And we don't, we don't just hate them because they're taking advantage of us. We hate them because they're taking advantage of the little lady on the street, too our grandmother, right? And the people that we know can't afford to pay those taxes are now in slavery. They, I'm telling you, they had ample reason to hate tax collectors. And tax collectors were terrible people. They were awful people. They got into the job because they were so immoral that money was more important to them than any kind of dignity or any kind of relationships with their own people. Sure, I'll, I'll sell out my people for a really nice crib. And so this was the state of the tax collectors back then. And this is the state of this man, Levi, we will meet in a moment. Brian Chappell said this. He said, the Jewish tax collectors were easily the most hated men in Hebrew society. They were considered to be despicable vermin. They were not only hated for their extortion, but also because they were lackeys of the Romans, much like the French hated Nazi collaborators during World War II. These Jews cannot serve as judges or witnesses in a court session, and they were excommunicated from synagogues. They were the lowest of the lowest. Can't come into our religious places anymore. We want nothing to do with you. You can't even be a witness in a court because we know how immoral you are. There's no way that, that your testimony means anything in court. That's, that was their take on tax collectors. So all of this makes the story we're about to read so much more remarkable. Mark chapter 2, 
We'll begin reading in verse 13. He went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them. And so Jesus had been going around and been performing miracles around Capernaum. He had just healed the paralytic. And remember that story, how incredible it was that he was forgiving the man's sin, that the Pharisees were, were so distressed and upset because Jesus had said that, because that meant he was acting like God. And so they saw it as blasphemy, rightfully so, if he wasn't God. And so they were upset that they had that happen. But Jesus has been here healing and forgiving and traveling around. And now he's doing what he does. He's walking around, walking by the seashore. He's got a crowd traveling with him. And along the way, he's teaching and healing. And so that is very normal at this point. This is normal, everyday Jesus ministry. What happens in the next verse is shocking. There's two almost unbelievable events that take place. Verse 14, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. Did you catch the two crazy things that happened there? That Jesus said to him? It's not weird that Jesus was walking by and saw him sitting there. That's normal. He was there all the time. Everybody walked by and spit at him or or shouted something unkind to him because everybody hated him. The weird part is that Jesus, this, this godly teacher, walks up to Levi, this hated man, and says, follow me. Levi is the embarrassment of his family. At family gatherings, everybody just pretends like he doesn't exist because it hurts to think about him. He is the dishonest traitor working for the occupying army. He's the extortionist getting filthy rich off the backs of his fellow Jews. He is the most hated man in Capernaum. It's impossible to overemphasize the hatred they would have for him, and it's impossible to overemphasize how terrible of a person he really was. And Jesus says to him, follow me. Can you imagine what the other disciples thought? I mean, Peter and Andrew, James and John, They're like, Jesus, okay, like, when you chose us, it was a little weird, right? We're fishermen, we're not really educated guys, and so it was really nice of you to pick us, but the truth is, we have at least a decent way of making money. Like, like we're not the worst of society. And so we understand why you might have chosen us to make a point that, you know, anybody can can be your disciples, but he's not anybody. He's the worst. You can't choose this guy. I'm sure this was running in their heads. And, and can I tell you something? Jesus, or James and, jo- and Andrew and John and Peter, I'm saying it the wrong way, but the, those guys, they were fishermen. Who do you think collected their taxes in Capernaum? They knew Levi. I mean, this wasn't a huge village, right? It's not, not big enough that you didn't know everybody. And so they would have known Levi. They would have hated Levi for personal reasons. And now Levi is being asked to, to be a follower of Christ. That's the first crazy thing that happens. The second one is, he got up and he followed him. He obeyed. In fact, in the book of uh, Luke, Luke says that he left everything to follow him, just like Peter and Andrew and James and John left everything to follow him. He did the same thing. He's got this franchise he owns. He's making today's millions of dollars a year. And he gets up and he leaves it alone. He says, I'm done. I'm not collecting tax anymore. I don't know who he passed it on to. I don't know what happened that day. But I know that 
probably for, in Capernaum, it was a good week, right? Because nobody's collecting taxes, because he's done with it. Now, how do you think Levi knew about Jesus? Because when we read these stories, the way that that Mark and Luke write them, it it almost seems like Levi is meeting Jesus for the first time, and, and potentially he was seeing Jesus for the first time. But I think that it's less mysterious than we make it out to be sometimes. I think probably Levi had heard about Jesus. I mean, Mark has made it clear that everybody is going to see him. Multiple times he says everybody went out to see him or to see his miracles or to hear him preach. And so even if Levi is not a part of that, everyone, he's definitely heard about him. And I wonder if, if he had gone to collect the taxes of Peter, Andrew, James, and John and was told, hey, they're actually not fishing anymore. And... You're like, what do you mean they're not fishing? Yeah, Jesus came by a little while back and said, follow me. And they just got off their boat. They left. They just, they just followed him. He's like, they just, you mean they, they put down their net and they followed him? Yeah, that's exactly what they did. And I wonder if Levi thought, what would that be like? What would it be like to leave everything and just go and follow Jesus? And now Jesus sees him. And I wonder what Levi thinks when he sees Jesus. There he is. This is the guy I've heard everything about. And then Jesus walks up to him and he says, Levi, I want you to follow me. And for the last how many years of Levi's life, has everybody, has anybody had anything kind to say about him? Has anybody wanted him for anything? Only hatred. And he deserved it. And now Jesus is coming to give him this, this love and this invitation that is completely undeserved i got to imagine it's pretty welcome. It's pretty welcome to have somebody say, I want you to follow me. I love you enough to invite you to follow me. And that's exactly what Jesus did for Levi. And so Levi gets up and he follows Jesus. And this is a reminder that there's no one that we should not be giving the gospel to because they're so far off. They're so far gone. There are certainly people that are so far gone. There are certain people that are like pretty messed up in their sin. But nobody would expect Levi to get up. And he did. Verse 15. Just before we get to verse 15. Do you ever th- wonder what the people in the village thought? Because the people in the village, I'm not talking about the Pharisees, but the people in the village have been following Jesus and they love Jesus. But it seems like Jesus is doing things with a point to make them a little bit uncomfortable. Right? Because he heals people and they like that, but then he says some things and they're like, oh, I'm, not so, I'm not sure about the forgiving sins part, and the Pharisees don't seem to like it, so I'm not confident about that. But he's healing more people and he's teaching, he's loving and kind, and so we really like that. But now he's going up to Levi. I don't feel good about that. This is not a comfortable Jesus. He's not willing to just let his followers kind of come to him and then kind of create him in their image or, or in any way that, that they want him to be. It's a Jesus that's actually pushing people to say, you should be loving these people you don't want to love. That's hard, but he's, he's, he's pushing them to do that. He's showing them by example. And so verse 15, came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, Luke tells us that he actually threw a party. He, he, he had a gathering of people, probably in Jesus' honor, but maybe it was a regular thing that happened there. But any, in any case... There's a group of people meeting at Levi's house. Many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. 
the scene here has changed, and now we're at Levi's house, and it's probably a really nice house, and he can have a really nice dinner, and so a lot of people come, and a lot of people are wondering, what's going on with this Levi character? What, what is he thinking? What is he doing? And so he has everybody over to, to give an explanation, and he, he introduces them all to Jesus. And what's amazing here is all of these people who are the worst of the worst, who, who actually would come to Levi's house, we have them following Jesus as well. They're called publicans and sinners, that is the tax collectors, and the ones in society that were recognized as the sinners. So it's not an adjective like this person is sinful sometimes, right? because we're all sinful sometimes. It is, it is the noun that is used to describe their state of being. This was their identity among the people. They are the sinners. They are the drug dealers. They are the gang leaders. They are the prostitutes. They are the ones that everybody looks at and says, those people are the worst. I mean, I know I'm, I know I'm a sinner. Okay, granted, we're all sinners, right? But those, they're the sinners. The worst. And that's who he's eating with. And, and for them, eating wasn't just like, yeah, sure, I'll share a meal with you. For them, eating was like, I'm going to have fellowship with you. There, there's more to it. There, I, I want to sit down. I want us to talk. I want us to, to develop and form a relationship. Um, I want to laugh with you. I want to eat with you. That's, that's the idea. And so Jesus is eating with these people. And the untouchables of society, because of their moral bankruptcy, become the followers of Christ. Verse 16. When the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eat with the publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with the publicans and sinners? This is not an open-minded question. They're not curious to know, oh, that's, that's interesting. Didn't expect that. Didn't see that coming. I didn't know Jesus would. No, they're not asking that way. They're saying, how is it possible that this guy claims to be a teacher of God and he's there with those people? But notice they don't have the courage to go ask Jesus. So they they just ask his disciples. And you know what they're doing? Do you see what kind of person you're following? How could you follow a guy like that? They're deciding in their heart and in their mind that there is no way that Jesus is the Messiah, because if Jesus was the Messiah, he would be more like them. The scribes were the interpreters and the copiers of the law. The Pharisees were the teachers and the enforcers of the law. They had 613 laws written down, and it was the job of the Pharisees to keep those laws and to ensure that other people did as well. They didn't have legal abilities to ensure them, but they certainly could ostracize people from the synagogue or from their society. Right? They're the ones that everybody looked to, to to give this spiritual and legal guidance. And so they were the impressive religious leaders of society. And these guys are saying, how is it possible that Jesus would eat with those people? What happened is, the Pharisees made laws that would ensure that they avoided contamination with the world. And the truth is, when you look back on Jewish history... It was actually the Pharisees, which literally means the separatists, that were the ones that stood very strong in their faith, in their way of life, when the Roman culture and Greek culture challenged their way of life. They were bringing in this new culture and these new gods, and it was the separatists, the Pharisees, that stood up and said, no, these are the laws that God wants us to follow. And so they had, at one point, done good. And what I'm saying is, in some points... Separating from something is a good thing. But separating from from everything, or separating at the wrong times, can be very destructive. 
And they had gone from the point where they said, we are separating ourselves from that sin. We're not doing that sin to, we are separating ourselves from all sinners. We want nothing to do with those people. Anybody that would practice those things, anybody that would be a part of, we don't love them. God's not their God. We want to be apart from them because we are holy. We are righteous. We're the impressive ones. And all of this obsession over their own righteousness caused them to abhor all those that they deemed unrighteous. We must understand that there is a difference between separating from sin and separating from sinners. And the truth is, we must be careful on both accounts. As Christians, as believers, we should be sure to separate from sin. People shouldn't be able to look at our lives and say, yeah, they are the exact same as everyone else. Right? So in, in that part of what they were doing, it, it's okay. It's okay if people look at you and be like, yeah, why aren't you doing and saying and acting all the same ways as, as everybody else? It's good to have that separation. It's bad to have a separation where they'd say, why don't you care at all about those people? Why do you stay away from them? Why do you not form any kind of relationships with those people? That is not what Jesus did. And the separation from sinners is ungodly. Their question was an accusation. If Jesus is a teacher from God, he should know not to eat and to identify with those people. And Jesus is here making the point that his mission is to eat and to identify with those kind of people. That's his purpose for coming. Verse 17, when Jesus heard it, he said unto them, they that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You want to know what Jesus came for? You know what he was all about during his life and ministry? Calling sinners to repentance. Jesus offers here a statement that cannot be argued against. If I was to ask any person here, who should go to a doctor? People that are healthy or people that are sick? Clearly, sick people should go to a doctor, right? You don't go to a doctor to like read the magazines in the office or because they have like really nice balloons that they let you take as you leave. That's not, you go to a doctor because you're sick. And so Jesus is saying, if these people, if you're, wait, are you saying that these people are sick? Because you realize it's sick people that need a doctor. At least the ones that know they're sick. There are a lot of people that are sick, they don't know it yet, right? And it's a problem that they're not going to see their doctor because their doctor might be able to help them out. But when you know you're sick, you know you need to go see a doctor. And it's because doctors can provide some hope of recovery, getting better, healing. And Jesus came to call sinners, the sick, to repentance. Are there any righteous people in the room that Jesus is standing in? It's a real question. You can answer are there any? Are, is there anyone there? No. I mean, outside of Jesus himself, there's no person that the sick part doesn't apply to, Pharisees included. And so he's saying that he's there not just to call all sick people to repentance, but to call those who recognize themselves to be sick to repentance. It's an amazing thing, this whole Christian, Christian religion, this, this whole belief system we have. 
Because every other belief system, it, it requires you to, to be something, to do something, to get somewhere in order to be accepted. And, and the way Christianity begins is it requires you to say that you are nothing, that you are only sin. There's a quote that I read this week, and it was an awesome quote, and I have it written down, and I don't know if I can find it. The first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness, but my badness. Not my merit, but my misery. Not my standing, but my falling. Not my riches, but my need. First, we come to Christ, we come with empty hands, we come on our knees, we come falling and begging for the forgiveness we don't deserve. And when we come that way, we receive it. And if we come any other way, he says, you don't think you're sick, you don't need me. But until we, when we realize that we're sick and we need a, a doctor, we need the great physician, he heals us, he is there for us. I think sometimes we forget that the mission is to go out and call sinners to repentance. C.T. Studd was a missionary to China, and he is famous for saying, some want to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. That was really his mission. But can I tell you, I I listened to or heard part of a, read part of a sermon that he gave this week, and it was convicting. It was challenging. Here's just a, a small excerpt from that sermon. He said, Christ's call is to feed the hungry, not the full. To save the lost, not the stiff-necked. To, not to call the scoffers, but sinners to repentance. Not to build and furnish comfortable chapels, churches, and cathedrals at home in which to rock Christian professors to sleep by means of clever essays, stereotyped prayers, and artistic musical performances, but to raise living churches of souls among the destitute, to capture men from the devil's clutches, and snatch them from the very jaws of hell, to enlist and to train them for Jesus, and to make them into an almighty army of God. That is a great reminder for us. Our mission, what Jesus did, he went and he developed relationships with sinful people. He showed them love and he called them to repentance. And so as we look at this amazing story, this encouraging story, when you think he loved Levi, he loves me. I want to give you a few points. First is this, Jesus is the enemy of the self-righteous. He's the enemy of the self-righteous. And he's the enemy of self-righteousness. And I know we know this, right? We know that it's true, but uh, Kent Hughes said, none of us are Pharisees philosophically, but we may be practically. In other words, we wouldn't say that we're righteous. We wouldn't just say, well, here's my 613 laws, and I'm doing pretty good this week, so I think I'm in better standing with God than this person. We don't say it out loud. But do you realize that your life might be saying that? If, if all you ever do is Christian things with Christian people, and all you're, you're shouting to the world. If you have no contact with the world, if, if every part of your life is like gift-wrapped and, and bubble-wrapped, you're shouting to the world that you're better, that, that 
you're not for them. They don't realize, well, I'm, I'm, it's, you know, Jesus' grace and his grace alone. They don't realize that you're a sinner just like them. Do you know why they don't realize any of those things? Because you, your life says something different. Your life tells them that you are better. You think you are, right? That you don't have time for them. You don't have any use for them. That somehow you've gotten to this level in your Christianity where you have to be apart from them. That's how the Pharisees acted. How could you eat with that person? And somehow, sometimes... That's how we act. I would never be friends with that person, but maybe you should. Maybe you should love them. Again, we need to be careful. We don't participate in sin. So it's not about going out and and getting smashed with your buddies because that's what they're doing and I want to be friends with them. But it is about saying, I would be friends with somebody who goes out and gets smashed sometimes. That's okay. It's okay to be friends with that person as long as you're not you know, they, they know where you're at, and they know that you love Christ, and, and you're, you're in your heart praying for them and, and calling them to repentance. And so Jesus is the enemy of the self-righteous. You will never out-religion the Pharisee. It was their obsession with their religion that made the law to them so closed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They held so tightly to the law and their goodness that they were closed completely to the gospel. And, and as believers... Sometimes I think we can let this thinking just creep in, right? We don't do it on purpose. I know that we know we're sinners, but sometimes it's like we just look down on other people. Like we believe maybe because of God's grace that we're better. That doesn't make sense, but we just, we have that feeling. We shouldn't. Go back to who you are without Christ Remember that you are lost, helpless. You're no better than any person out there. No better than Levi, though Jesus Christ. And so let that knowledge and the, the understanding that Jesus loved you at your worst compel you to love others. That brings me to my second point, and that is that sick people need a doctor. Sick people need a doctor. Okay? Now, that applies, I guess, in thinking two ways. And one way is, if you know you're sick tonight, Recognize that Jesus is the great physician. He is the doctor that can heal your sickness. Um, I'm sad that I think a lot of people come to church or don't come to church because they feel like they need to get right before they come to church. That's not how it should be. And if, if you've ever had that thought that maybe you're not good enough to be in church, can I tell you that's, that's entirely wrong. Um, Jesus came for the sinners. So if you see that you're a sinner, it's you that he came for and not the people that think they're really good. But on the other hand, do you notice in this story, it's Jesus that pursues Levi. It's Jesus that walks up to his booth and Jesus that calls him to follow him. And what I'm seeing here is that there are sometimes people who will think they're not good enough to come. Or maybe they think they're so bad, they're, they're helpless, right? Maybe they don't care at all and they don't want to come. Maybe they're just so sinful. Whatever it is, sometimes the people of Jesus need to go out and tell them and get them and bring them, right? Pursue them. The beautiful truth of the gospel is that God pursued us while we were dead in our sin. And so who are we to think we shouldn't be pursuing other sinners, That is now, if Jesus' mission is to seek and save the lost, and we're his disciples, it just makes sense that our mission is to seek and to save 
lost. And so we must be pursuing pursuing people like Levi. Uh, if seeking the lost was a part of Jesus' mission, surely it should be ours as well. C.T. Studd, again, same sermon, said this. We shall go crusading for Christ. We have men. We have the means. We have the ways. Steam and electricity and iron have leveled the lands and bridged the seas. You like that? He's saying, like, back in his day, traveling is easy. How much more so in our day? The doors of the world have been opened wide for us by our God. We pray and preach. We bow the knee. We receive. We administer the Holy Communion of the Passion of Christ. We recite the Creed triumphantly. We are optimists, everyone. We shout, onward Christian soldiers, marching on to war. And then? And then? We whisper and we pray, Lord Have me excused. Have me excused. Then he says, what glorious humbugs we are. (laughs) Yeah, like honestly, could we not get excited tonight about hearing about a mission that's taking place around the world? Do we not get excited when we hear about the gospel going out? Do we not understand that that is our mission and we're so grateful and happy that it's happening But don't we also, when we get the opportunity in our workplaces, say, yeah, I don't want to do it, though. Like, like, Lord, bring somebody into this person's life. I think Casting Crowns has a song that's all about uh, uh, sending, Lord, asking and praying that God will send someone to witness to your friend. How about you do it? Why don't you witness to your friend? And we're all saying prayers like that. I want Chatham to hear the gospel. I can't wait till somebody else does it. And I'm not saying you got to get up and tell, tell the gospel to all of Chatham, right? Like, you don't, you don't need to have that kind of lofty, unattainable goal. Maybe the goal should start with, I'm going to at least make sure the people at my work know. I'm going to tell you, tomorrow morning, I'm, we're having a talk. <laughs> yeah. But, but really, couldn't we? Couldn't we make sure that, that the lost people at our work know that there's a physician? If they're sick, that there's, there's somebody that can heal them? I mean, doesn't mean they're going to come, but we've done our job seeking to save that which is lost. At least that's Jesus' job, and, and we're his representatives. And so how do we do this? How do we go out and bring sick people to the doctor? I read a book on evangelism. It was convicting. It's called One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. It was about the fact that you can't evangelize in heaven, and so this is our time to do that. But there was a couple of stories that I disagreed with, and one of them was about a guy going out, and he was actually going out on the streets late at night and paying a prostitute to sit in his car so she, he could give her the gospel. I don't think that's a good idea. I think that's, that's not a good way of, of doing evangelism. Uh, another one was that they, they went to the bars at night, and they would try and give the gospel there, or to beaches. And I thought some of those things probably aren't the best plans. And so how do we actually get out and engage the lost with the gospel? And I don't know that we need some of these really fancy ideas or methods, or we don't, we don't need to be paying prostitutes to do it, I think probably the best way to do it is just to start with the people that we know. And, and, and maybe go out in our lives with the mission of developing relationships so that we can bring the gospel into people's lives. So I don't need to go to work tomorrow and shout at the person beside you after years of not telling them the gospel that they're going to hell if they don't get saved. Okay? Don't do that tomorrow. 
tomorrow, start thinking about that person and praying about that person, asking God for opportunities to give, that you can give the gospel to that person. And maybe look for opportunities to show the love of Christ. And maybe start thinking about how your testimony is affecting your witness to that person. But start living differently. Start living on mission. We should not be assimilated into the world where we're the same as the world. We should not be isolated from the world where we don't touch the world at all. We must be on mission for the world. That's being salt and light. And so we must be, in, in everyday opportunities, engaging the world with the gospel. First, we recognize that Jesus came for sinners, and he is the enemy of the self-righteous. Second, we see that sick people need a doctor. And finally, and I think Mark's kind of overarching point here, his main point, is that Jesus is the great physician. He is the great physician. In every one of the stories we have covered, there are many lessons we can learn in the book of Mark. There's so many things that jump out. But here, seeing Jesus, and having Jesus say to these Pharisees, I didn't come for the righteous. I didn't come for the self-righteous. I came for the, the sinners, for the lost, for the broken. For those that, that, that know they need healing, but they know that they can't do it themselves. When we look at Levi's life, do you know what we see? We see somebody who is entirely undeserving. Wretched, vile sinner. The guy, honestly, that I would have hated. I think you would have hated him too. Right? For good reason. And then we see him become something incredible in the hands of the Savior. As he is healed by Jesus. He brings nothing to the table. All he does is gets up and follows him. And can I tell you what he becomes? In Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, it says, as Jesus passed forth from, th- from thence, he saw a man named, wait, this is the same story. But his name there is not Levi. His name there is Matthew, sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, follow me. And he arose and he followed him. Same story. In Matthew chapter 10, we have a list of disciples. And verse 3, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the, ta- the publican or the tax collector. You, you know that Levi and Matthew are the same person in the Bible. And you understand that Jesus saw the flawed life of Levi. And as he looked at the flawed life of Levi, he saw that he would become Matthew, the gospel writer. Matthew, the the one according to tradition, was, was killed while he was preaching the gospel. Here's like this incredible transformation. Levi didn't do it. Jesus did it. He is the great physician. So if you will ask the question, can he heal me? Can he change me? The answer is clearly yes. Yes, he can heal you. Yes, you're you're not beyond his reach, beyond beyond his grace. And if you're a believer and you've come to him knowing that, but then then times you doubt, I tell you something, he's still your great physician. And he's still working on you. And he's still changing you from Levi to Matthew, right? He's working on all of us. Centuries ago, there was a a number of workmen, and they were dragging this incredibly heavy block of marble into Florence, Italy. It took them a long, long time to get it there. And this, this marble was intended to be a statue of an Old Testament character. You'll know Donatello as a sculptor, and as soon as he laid eyes on that block of marble, do you know what he did? He 
refused it. He said, take it away. That marble is good for nothing. It's got all these imperfections. It's got all these flaws. It's got all these problems. I don't want that block of marble. I can't work with it. Well, later on, before it was dragged away, another sculptor saw this same block of marble. And for two years, he sculpted this block. I mean, he worked day and night for two years. This man's name was Michelangelo. And the sculpture was the sculpture that's well-known, one of the greatest works of art of all time, the sculpture of David. And he took, Michelangelo took this rejected marble, this flawed marble, and he made it into a masterpiece. That's the lame example of what Jesus does when he takes a sinner and makes it into his child, his masterpiece. And so Jesus is our great physician. He is the Savior that is seeking you. In Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 28, 22, uh, Jeremiah the prophet asks the question, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? The idea is, is there no way of healing? Is there no God to heal you? Like, what's going on? Because there's no healing taking place. And the reason is, the sick people wouldn't come to God for healing. There's nobody giving that healing out anymore. Israel had rejected the healer. But if they had accepted the healer, there would be healing. That's the, that's the promise that goes along with that. I love that we see Levi changed here, and I love that he's not the only one. Remember in, in Mark chapter 2, verse 15 in our story, it says, It came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. Jesus' call to Levi Maybe it was special in that it wasn't a call to apostleship for all those people, but it was a call to follow him for all those sinners. And it's the same call that he offers now. Come, repent of your sin, and follow me, and be my disciple. When we do that, he takes over. He he does the rest. Jesus is the enemy of the self-righteous, and so get rid of that. Sick people need a doctor. So if you're sick, come to him. And if you know someone that's sick, bring them. And Jesus is the great physician. He will heal us.